I'm Roman Mars, and I'm the host and creator of 99% Invisible. It's a podcast about architecture and design. Roman Mars, what made you start a podcast about architecture and design? Well, I started this show. It was a project of the American Institute of Architects chapter in San Francisco and a public radio station called KALW in San Francisco. They had this notion that they wanted a little story about buildings, like a little architecture minute that they could drop into their you know morning magazine program. And they called me in to ask me what I thought of that, what I could do with that. And I just began to explore the idea of it. And then eventually we widened the whole scope of it to all aspects of design. And that became 99% Invisible. And it was sort of, it was meant to be just this little module that, that aired on public radio, but it really took off as a podcast and began to grow and get longer than a minute, certainly. Yeah, it's now, what, all of 12 minutes, sometimes <laughs> We're 20. We're stretching out to 12. Steady on, you'll use up all the internet. <laughs> Since you were already working as a radio producer, why would you then do podcasts in your spare time rather than a completely different sort of hobby? <laughs> the curse of doing something that you really love for your job is that you end up doing your job all the time. So I kind of don't have other hobbies. I don't really do anything else. The model train world's loss is podcasting's yeah, game. I just sort of, I just keep thinking of ideas for other radio shows. And so I was working on a... a a big show called Snap Judgment at the time that I started 99% Invisible. And it was just sort of like, because those stories on that show are very emotional and personal stories, I, my, my reporting voice is much more of an explanatory, uh, you know, just like didactic, (laughs) annoying voice. And so I needed an outlet for that. And 99% Invisible seemed like the right one. And so it became my nighttime hobby because of that. You needed an outlet for didactic, annoying <laughs> <Exactly>. Roman. <laughs> otherwise, so that he didn't ruin your personal I life. Otherwise, my friends. So, and and I just liked the way that I I, I just felt like oh I could I could do these stories right. I, I they felt um they felt like my voice and my tone and and the type of stories I like to tell. And and I wasn't really doing them in my my regular job at that point. Is it true that you make your podcast in a shed in your garden? That is true. I um I started in my bedroom and like a half of my bedroom where I worked out of and then we we moved and there was an office out back and so we have this little shed out back I'm sitting in the backyard now on top of the hill in the Berkeley Hills and uh and I I work out of here most of the time but now that the show has grown I have a staff of people who work in an office in downtown Oakland. And uh, so I go down and see them uh, a couple times a week. So it's more like a real job now. It is. It's a real job. On top of your real job. Yeah. I mean, I stopped uh, I stopped my other real jobs uh, right now. I still work for PRX. I, I program a radio station for them called PRX Remix. And I help uh, sort of organize a, a, a podcasting consortium called Radiotopia for PRX. And, and then the rest of my job is 99% invisible. Radiotopia sounds like a very idealistic notion. Explain what it is. It is an idealistic notion. We, I mean, after the success of 99% Invisible on Kickstarter and sort of just, just reaching an audience, I had this idea that I wanted to take the lessons of 99% Invisible and try to turn them into a business plan or just a plan of action for other story-based podcasts that I really loved. And so 
we just sort of form this collective, PRX and I form this collective to, um, to just get sort of creative, interesting audio out into the world and have it be sort of digital first. Like these were really tended to be traditional public radio producers, but we wanted them to create shows that were meant to be podcasts first. And so that was what Radiotopia was all about. As a radio producer, what is the difference between producing a radio show and producing a podcast? I I think that you can't really overestimate the impact of just having time constraints on things. So, you know, like so much of my time as a radio producer has been spent cutting to make time or, you know, you know, filling to, to get to a certain time. And when you don't have to worry about that and you can just sort of uh, rely on what the story needs, then you make a very different, you know, product in the end. And then there also, I think the tone of podcasting is slightly more intimate. And, uh, and it's interesting to me to play with that, the way that I talk to someone thinking that I'm talking to them inside of their heads versus talking to, um, rather than broadcasting. It's a, it's a little bit different in tone. And so, you know, there's all those sorts of things. And then also the, you know, the type of content, which is not allowed on, on the radio. So there's a couple of ours like, uh, love and radio in, in our group and the uh, theory of everything and uh, even maybe strangers sometimes uh, that really don't fit in terms of just their 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 edginess of their content is a little too much for a lot of public radio and then there's stuff like uh, the truth which is just audio fiction which just really doesn't have much of a place on american public radio so it's it's just nice to have another uh, outlet for that stuff you started 99% Invisible in 2010. Were you expecting it to become so successful financially and in listenership? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really didn't do it as a podcast. I mean, I, I started it and put it on the air. I put it on a website, like on a Tumblr. And I I only made it into a podcast because my friends said, I'm not going to stream your show off of a Tumblr. <laughs> you have to make it so it downloads automatically. And so then I made a podcast and I used a sort of turnkey, uh, cheap uh, sort of podcasting solution to make that happen. And then we outgrew that after we got some attention and pick up from folks like, I mean, Jesse Thorne was the first person to really highlight the show to his his audience. And then um, the American public radio show, Radio Lab. Uh, had me on and that really made everything explode and then you know and then we were and then when it came to the raising the money it was just like I needed it to make it make it make sense to spend my nights doing it and so I you know did the kickstarter to just try to raise money for it I wasn't really trying to turn it into a a, you know like a business or something that was profitable in any way but it sounds like the money aspect was trying to psychologically validate this project of yours absolutely in the <laughs> beginning it was i mean the first kickstarter was this existential question of whether this show should exist you know so it was like can, can we get the support for it can it does it make sense for the show to continue and can i pay everybody and can i pay myself at least enough so that me taking time away from my children and my normal life is is at least not a stupid idea you know and that's what the first one was about. 
And it seems that it was financially worth you spending all this time away from your wife and children because <laughs> your initial aim with the first Kickstarter campaign was to raise how much? The first one was 42000 And what did you eventually raise? We raised $175,000. And the second one? We tried to raise 150000 to take the show weekly. And then what happened? <laughs> and then we raised $375,000. So you seem to have cracked what very few podcasters have, which is making a podcast a financial success. Uh, have you replaced all of your body parts with gold? <laughs> <laughs> no, what I ended up doing was uh, hiring people. That was really the, that's, and it, and it's amazing how fast the money goes when you hire people. They're, they're expensive, but they're good and they make the show better. So it's worth it. What I ended up doing was, you know, hiring reporters who you know could get more stuff done before i had to touch it you know so like my workload would decrease a little bit because what ended up happening after the first one was i had i hired on sam greenspan as my producer and uh what ended up happening is we just ended up working more and so Uh. and so uh it wasn't a relief i ended up working more at night and the shows were better and everything about the show and its growth and just artistic growth and sort of audience growth improved so you know, I was really happy for it, but to go weekly, we needed to sort of build out the team and the process, and that involved hiring uh, another producer, Katie Mingle, and another um, assistant producer, Avery Truffleman, who was our intern, and trying to make all these things happen. And so, so far, we've done a month worth of weekly shows, and it's been actually pretty good. We haven't been completely under the gun. We are we're behind. It's it's like we're turning into a real radio show. God, what are you doing with all this spare time you suddenly have? <laughs> well, I, you know, I get to see my kids again. Do they remember who you are? Yeah, they do. They're like, Thank goodness. They do. Before the first Kickstarter campaign, did you realize just how strongly the fans of 99% Invisible felt about the show? I had a small inkling about it because it was the first project I'd ever done where the audience would write me and say, how can I give you money? without me asking for it. So I had a little bit of an inkling that they would be willing to support the show. And then I'd put out little feelers on social media and pretty active on social media and just would say, hey, what, you know, what do you think here? What would I, what could I offer? What would be good? Could, should I do a text, you know, cell phone text campaign or do something on Kickstarter or something like that? And so I had some idea of like a very anecdotal market research from my audience, but I had no idea it would be like it was i I, when we launched the first kickstarter i was trying to raise thirty thousand to begin with we i raised it to 42 so that i could pay sam one or two days a week to help me out on the show and i was really sweating it on 42 i just didn't think that we were going to make it or if we did make it it would be we'd just make it and then we ended up hitting that goal in in 24 hours did it make you feel very arrogant about your achievements? No, because I've been doing this a really long time and I feel like I've been a pretty good producer for a lot of it. And and it's so it's I'm really aware of the fact that uh, it has kind of nothing. It doesn't have nothing to do with me or my skill set, but it's really a bunch of circumstances altogether, uh, including like our collective talent and stuff like that. I don't want to discount it, but you know, I, I'm of the mindset right now that I'm just trying to do as much with the show as I possibly can because 
I'm all too aware that any moment it could change because I could just, you know, be like I was before and, you know, be a good, competent producer that was pretty well respected inside of the public radio community, but uh, unknown and, you know, unloved and underpaid. (laughs) Well, you could do a Mel Gibson and go down in flames. (laughs) So I'm... uh, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think of, I just, I just, I know the reality of that. I've been doing this for, you know, 13 years. And so it's for, for a lot of the time, you know, people just don't really care. But then the podcast audience, they don't need to pay for the show. And therefore them not only voluntarily paying for the show, but paying quite large amounts in mm-hmm. some cases proves that they do care that they're, they're voting with their money. Yeah. Is this, is this, um, how does the radio industry respond to this? Does this make them take the medium of podcasting a bit more seriously? Yeah, I think it does. I think I, I mean, I certainly have a lot of meetings with these folks in the radio world, just trying to figure out what they can do with it. And um, I think that's great that they're thinking about it. it. It has a weird effect on them because what ends up happening, like in our system, you as a producer you sell your work to radio stations and then the radio stations they do pledge drives and campaigns to raise money and but you don't get it directly so you don't directly support radio shows usually but the ones who raise a lot of money for the stations end up commanding more money from the station to play the show and so in my model we're skipping over the station because it just turns out the stations just didn't want me, you know? So, so I went to the people directly and that's how it ended up working for, for us. And so if in some ways they get a little threatened by that, however, they are also usually creators of content and they have producers uh, sitting around uh, trying to do something interesting. They can't always fit it onto their air because of just, you know, it's it's a bigger risk. It's a little bit off. It's not in their you know primary mission. And if they see this as an opportunity to take their best and brightest, who's kicking around a station and put out a new show and test it out on as a podcast, I think that they'll see that there's a there's a huge opportunity here for everyone to be you know content creators and not just distributors of work. So um, they're interested and intrigued. They see this as a another revenue source potentially to for a station to go to kickstarter instead of just doing on-air pledge drives uh they see a lot of potential in that but they kind of don't know what to make of it exactly do you think they'll catch up in time i I think so i'm hopeful that the the best ones certainly will the the ones that are used to turning on a feed from you know the national broadcaster or you know just mix and matching without a lot of care and thought they'll probably be left behind but i'm not terribly concerned about them (laughs) so do you see the future of of audio entertainment generally as being funded by the people who are consuming it directly rather than from a large corporation then it filters down to people who don't really get the choice about what goes to air i think so i think that the the direct to consumer and the the sort of uh, on demand listening is going to be uh, become even you know more primary than than it is right now. I, I think that's I think that's the way it is for most entertainment actually. I mean, but the I mean the reason that it was necessitated in this case was the business model was such that as an independent producer, 
I was dependent on radio stations uh, taking my work and they just don't pay anymore. And so, you know, if they did, I wouldn't have had to circumvent them. How is your Radiotopia project funded? Or as I like to call it, your audio socialist paradise. (laughs) It is funded by the Knight Foundation, which is, um, you know, like a a foundation dedicated to... uh, to journalism and sort of new models of journalism and MailChimp is a corporate sponsor who I've worked with on my show for for a long time. So instead of taking this money and enjoying it yourself you've spread it around to other podcasters. Yeah well I mean I I wouldn't have gotten the money from the Knight Foundation had it not you know gone to PRX and gone out through these other channels so it wasn't my money or anything like that And, and I donated a little bit of my Kickstarter money to into the cause too. So I have thought about, you know, like as I've been going through this, um, uh, it has crossed my mind that I could be injuring 99% Invisible (laughs) to have to fundraise for everybody and not just me anymore. But I, uh, I'm so devoted to this idea that there needs to be more stuff out there that's really good and that great producers need to be working in this space and they need to be encouraged and there needs to be a path to success in this way for more people and so uh i i think it's going to pay off i'm i'm really really confident in the in the radiotopia so you are sacrificing your own needs for the needs of the many that is very (laughs) socialist of you how do you see the future of podcasting more generally you know i don't know i think that the what I'd love to see is the technology gets to the point where it doesn't feel like podcasting is a thing that we all just make uh, audio shows and you'll consume them any type of way and it'll feel pretty seamless. So my sense is uh, when we get sort of integrated into cars or, or your phone in a, in an interesting way, more interesting way than a podcast app, then it'll just seem like everything else. And that's kind of what I, that's, that's kind of what I predict. Because now that people are used to this idea that they watch TV with, you know, however they want to, whenever they want to, and they understand that a podcast isn't really all that different of a beast than a, just a radio show, it'll, uh, it'll just kind of even out and everything will feel kind of natural. But as of right now, there's about five steps too many to, to get a podcast. And so you'll, there's a theoretical maximum of people that you can actually reach. Who are the audience of 99% invisible I'm not entirely sure I mean I don't really have market research or anything but they they seem to be the the, the sense is from other market research that I've uh, stolen glances of that uh, they're a little bit younger than than the public radio audience they're uh, they're you know pretty tech savvy and, and and good they they obviously are generous and because they pay for a thing that is otherwise free and um they are uh you know and they're for me they're all over the world so and that's really satisfying i've also noticed that you know when people are name dropping certain cultural things to make them seem both cool and intelligent it's always your show now (laughs) well that's fantastic (laughs) i haven't heard that yet people are i find that they're uh, painfully honest as 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 audience and painful to me sometimes because they'll say i don't know why they they bother when they meet me they'll say like you know what you're my third favorite show oh 
that's rude. <laughs> I was like, well, that's, you can just say you like it. That'd be okay. After It's usually after This American Life and Radio Lab. But uh, well, that's okay. at least that's good company. I know. I, 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 I totally don't mind. But they, and they all, uh, and when the thing is, I don't know if this is the nature of just uh, having an audience at all or having an audience who, you know, partially pays for your existence. But they, uh, they have lots of, you know, little criticisms and lots of improvements that you could make. <laughs> so you, I'm sure you get those too. That's sort of like. No, there's nothing wrong with my show. <laughs> Or lots of there's lots of um, lots of uh, grammar correction in in public radio. That's for sure. When you make something th- this complex, at least th- this complex as the shows are, or and even the website and everything, it's just I don't even know if you've even consciously made the decision of what's important and what isn't. You just kind of know, and uh, and then also people don't like it when you try something. Like I got kind of I, I <laughs> some I did a a piece in the f- the first episode of this season where I I swore at a. A, a long dead guy uh, as a joke because I thought it was funny and uh, I bleeped it out and stuff but uh, a few people really didn't like that at all but it's a lot of people soon. thought it was amazing even the non-paying audience I think feel very invested in the podcast because it's taken so many steps to listen to it so maybe yeah. that exerts itself as being a little bit too possessive over the material yeah I mean I think that all in all I benefit so much from their uh, connection to the show that the little bit of criticism I get and it's pretty minor is uh, totally worth it and uh, it's just like sometimes when I wake up in the morning it's the first email I get which is often it's it's always nicely couched it's this sort of I'm a huge fan of the show but you know kind of those. <laughs> just don't read it after the but. yeah I often I often don't I, I I mean I do and I don't I collect them <laughs> I collect them for a time when I recognize what's coming I'll uh I'll collect a few of them and I won't look at them until the end of the day after I'm producing because I find that uh, being self-conscious of other people's criticisms make me not have as much fun producing the rest of the day. So I save them for the end just to have them for the night. (laughs) Yeah, just to ruin your dreams. (laughs) Do people send in their own unsolicited 99% Invisibles? Oh yeah, totally. The one that I'm most confused about is the one where that somebody will say, I know all about this stuff. And they list it out and they'll say, I really want you to do a show about it. And I was like, why? Why? You already know all about it. Um, but I, I think people like to hear things they know. I kind of like, I like to take tests I'm really good at, you know? <laughs> Sort of like, you know, online tests about news or something like that. You know, it's like, all right, 10 out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's the same principle. Like they they really want to hear a thing, maybe explore it, maybe a little bit of my take on it. But they really just kind of want to be validated that they they know something cool. And so I get those um, at least once a day, probably a few times a day. The, the sort of like, I think, I you know, I think you should do a story about this or this is, I read this thing. A lot of times, like, we've become the owners of a certain story. So we've, we've done a, a story about dazzle painted ships. And so anything with crazy dazzle paint on it, uh, or even things that just have a busy pattern, like the Norwegian curling team's, you know, suit <laughs> or something, it'll, I'll get you know, 10 people sending that to me and, um, and, and then the, um, any, anything like that, like your brother who gets everything with penises, you know, 
I'm sure um, he doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> How has your show changed from what it started out as? Well, it got a lot longer just because I got rid of the time constraint of doing four and a half minutes. Although I do a four and a half minute version of every episode for the radio. So for the short of attention span. Yeah. And it for just for because on the radio, your existence is taking away the existence of something else because it's linear. And so since you don't have to worry about that on the podcast, it's great. You're you're free and open and can go. But there's no public radio program director or producer or editor who wants you to go on any longer than absolutely necessary. So uh, so that's it developed into sort of being the story it, it always is kind of meant to be rather than trying to be cutting, cutting it down. Um, one thing that did happen was, I, I mean, when it was, um, when it first started, m- my vision of each story was that it would work as a four and a half minute story. And the longer version that the podcast audience craved, I would just sort of keep in the stuff that was painful to cut and it would sort of get to about six minutes and maybe seven. Um, now when we sort of green light a show or pursue any sort of piece of reporting, uh, I think of the primary product as the podcast as the, we're going to tell the story in 12 to 20 minutes or eight to, you know, whatever, eight to 20 minutes. And the, conception of what is going to be the uh, radio version of it one little part of it excised or or maybe it all telescoped down to to being four and a half minutes that's the secondary product which has been very strange for me i don't know if it's evolving into like a show that's more about the podcast in terms of the production like am i getting i don't i could be getting weirder you know <laughs> on the air uh, or I could be, my tone definitely got more and more relaxed and casual and kind of the, I like the inside of the head miking of, of a person like talking right next to you. And in the beginning, I think that it had those elements, but it was still meant for broadcast in a, in a, in a with a, a, you know, a, a more traditionally mic'd way. And now I think I, I've gone like, I may have gone three steps beyond that. And so every once in a while, you know, somebody at a radio station will go, um, I really like it, but it just doesn't fit the tone of, you know, our morning edition or whatever. And uh, and they could be more right than they were in the beginning, you know, that it actually doesn't quite fit in. Like we've just sort of evolved into whatever this thing is that we've created. It's the Wild West podcasting. <laughs> exactly. We get more and more relaxed yeah. <laughs> in our Without, Wild without West. discipline. I mean, it's it's kind of the equivalent of turning up to work wearing your pajamas. That's what you're doing. <laughs> right. With your voice. It's kind of like that. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Yeah, I do get that. One of the complaints about the, the episode where I swore at the guy was uh, a couple people said, uh, I like the whole point is that you're calm. You know, and that, that that was the joke of it was that I wasn't calm for this last little portion. But but that's something that people really gravitate towards is this, um, you know, my my relaxed uh, presentation. You listen to a lot of podcasts as well. I do. What in your estimation makes a good podcast? Huh. It's like anything else. I'm a big believer in just production. So and and you can be produced and go live to tape like you could spend time in writing and con- conceiving of what the show is going to be and then go and then banter and be live to tape and be great or you can uh, 
banter talk and and do interview and and not have as much preparation and then spend all the time in post-production to make it good but there's nothing gets away from the you know it's just the uh, law of physics that for it to be good it has to be produced it means you have to put care and thought into it you have to think about it as a story you have to think about how it flows as a, over the course of the episode these are all things that you can't get away with and podcasting i think a good a good portion of it out there in the world people think that they can just be interesting turn on the mic and just magic happens and i just have never seen that actually happen in real life so the the good ones people work you know i think that's what's really key what would you say to the arrogant people that think whatever they say is interesting so they don't have to edit it <laughs> i would just say edit it <laughs> it's, i mean really i mean you have to like i feel like if if i were to think like the key thing the reason why people support my show is they recognize that i put care into it and therefore they think it's worth supporting and if you do that i believe that people will be there for you that they 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 really really value the production and time you put into your work and it's almost impossible to fake you know you just can't get away with you know winging it all the time and having it be great occasionally you can and it'll fool you into thinking that you can do it all the time but you really really can't the best work always has a lot of work put into it and so i i i think that that's the main the main value i don't think anything else is really all that important i don't i kind of don't i'm not someone who really cares tremendously about audio quality and all these sorts of things I, I think that if you have a spark something that's really something about you that that interesting that hooks people in it, it's attractive to people and then you put in the work to make it that much better then you'll have a, a good show the only thing that pains me is when something gets popular and it's bad <laughs> <laughs> naming no names yeah, just something with some celebrities or something like that. And you're just like, oh, come on. Because I don't want that to be the first thing people hear when they hear a podcast. You know, it's irritating. The archetype is the, the two people chatting. And there's great examples of that in the world. You know, like I love those, those shows. It's not like I need music and sound effects and reporting. I, I don't need that at all. I just need someone to put in the effort and, and really care about what they're putting out there. I think that's, I think that's, that's, the, that's the secret. It's no secret at all. 